I think there are moments where there are some risks that are just not worth accepting, and it starts with the poker game <laughs> and ends with with serious investments. Trying to avoid losses instills like a good amount of discipline. The 2020 slash 2021 bubble, these new trends happen to coincide with everyone being at home and sports got canceled for a while that <laughs> mostly were sports gamblers figuring out that actually uh-huh. the, the big they were missing out on the biggest casino in the world <laughs> the biggest mistakes that people make in investing are basically they're trying to buy lottery tickets Welcome to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. How to make it, save it, keep it. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question. What it means to live a rich life beyond money. My guests share their practices, principles, and evergreen wisdom. I'm your host, Bogumil Baranowski, author, TEDx speaker, investor, and a founding partner of Seacard Associates, a boutique investment firm founded in New York City. Join me on this quest to unearth the wisdom of the ages. Dear listener, we reached 10,000 downloads about six months since the launch of the podcast. So big thanks to all of you. There are two other milestones that put a smile on my face. First, most of you listen to the entire episodes. And in a world where many spend billions to get a second of anyone's attention, my guests get a full hour of your attention every week. So again, a big thank you to all of you on my guest's behalf and on my own. Second, I enjoy hearing how so many of my guests might have given hundreds of interviews before, yet they tell me that this one was their best or one of the best. I'm also flattered to know how some guests have given one or two podcasts interviews in their life and one of them was with me. Thank you for that as well. One small request uh, to you, dear listener. Think of one person today who would enjoy this podcast, pick one episode that they would like, and do me a favor and share it with them now before listening. You'll help me double the audience by next Monday. And if you can think of at least one woman in your life, your spouse, your mom, grandma, sister, best friend, and share it with them too. Thank you. I know that most of my listeners are from California, New York, Texas, and Florida, but I want to call out some other states and hear from you as well. And this week I'm going to mention Utah, Nevada, and Alabama. Most of my listeners are from the US, Australia, and the UK, but I also want to hear from Tunisia, Ecuador, and Ukraine. And thank you for listening. Before we get started, please consider subscribing and following the show so you don't miss on the upcoming episodes. And there are some really interesting guests ahead of us, not just today, but in the coming weeks. I will be speaking with Jacob McDonough, and we'll talk about Berkshire. He wrote a wonderful book about the early days of Berkshire when Buffett arrived. I will talk to Adam Ashton, who has a very successful podcast in Australia with a global reach. It's called What You Will Learn, and him and Adam Jones talk about books every week. I also have Milo Jones, who researched how the CIA operates and has some thoughts about asking better quality questions, which is something that could serve us well in the investment world. I'll have Todd Finkel, who wrote a book about Buffett as the entrepreneur. I'll have again Christopher Mayer, who was a guest on the show and talked about 100 Beggars. And we'll talk about his other books, 
Again, I'll have Byron Tully, the old money book author, who comes back and talks about another book that's dedicated to women. After that, I'll have John Rotonti, who is an award-winning analyst, followed by Luca Dellana, who wrote a book, uh, Ergodicity, and will be introduced to a whole new concept. Followed by John Jennings, we'll talk about uncertainty. Scott Patterson, Chaos Kings, Dan Peco, and Corey Wren will talk to us about the early days of Berkshire and their experience of going to Berkshire meetings for the last 30-some years. Please stay tuned, follow the show, and don't miss on any of the episodes. Last but not least, please go ahead and check out my new book, Crisis Investing, where I share essays from the last three years of pandemic investing and everything I've learned during that time. The book held a number one, two, three position in a number of categories in Amazon's new releases. So thank you again. All right, that's it. Let's get going with the show. My guest today is Evan Tyndall. Evan is a poker player, MIT graduate, and a value investor. Evan is a co-founder and chief investment officer of Byram Capital. He develops firm-wide investment strategy and performs both bottom-up research and portfolio management for the flagship fundamental value strategy. Evan worked for seven years at Ballantine Capital, where he was the lead equity analyst at the value-oriented long-short equity fund. Prior to that, he spent three years as a professional poker player, where his successes included a 10th place finish at a European poker tour event. He graduated in 2007 with a BS in mechanical engineering from MIT, where he was a four-time All-American in tennis. We talk about Evan's childhood and upbringing and his path to a career in the investment world, Evan's pandemic-era essays, investing through the pandemic, We discuss the difference between going long and short in investing in equities and the reasons for doing both. Evan shared the importance of discipline during stormy times in the market. We explored how Evan and his firm operated with a high level of uncertainty during the crisis. We also discuss Evan's interest in booms and busts of the past, particularly in relation to the 2020, 2021, 22 years. We discussed the concept of a barbell market with speculative stocks on one end and proven businesses on the other. We examine inflation and its impact on investing, including its potential to pop the everything bubble. Evan also shared his selling strategy. It was a delight to have Evan on the show and learn from him, especially talking about such a unique time in the investment history, the years of the COVID pandemic. Please help me welcome Evan Tyndale. Well, hi, Evan. How are you? Nice to see you. I'm good. Good to see you. Thanks for having well, me. We both attended Guy Spears Value X last winter, and I'm glad we have this opportunity to sit down and talk. You know that I read your letters that you both wrote during the last crisis, during the pandemic, and right. I wrote some essays during that period, too, that we can talk about more. But through those letters, I, I feel like I got to know you a little bit better. I know how, <laughs> how you think and how you operate in times of distress, so I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about. But before we jump in, I'm always curious to hear more about my guests and their childhood and upbringing and how you think that time influenced both your relationship with money and how that time eventually laid the foundation for the career that you're on today. And I know you have some stories, so... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, sure, yeah. I, I grew up in I grew up in Florida, 
I was essentially an, an only child. My, I have a, I have an older, my, my brother's like 17 years older than me. So he was in, in college already. <laughs> so he wasn't, uh, wasn't in the house. I honestly didn't have, I didn't have much experience with, with money or investing. My, my dad was into stocks and investing like sort of later, like by the time, maybe like by the time I got to college. Yeah, I'm not sure what he did. I'm not sure what my what my parents did with with extra money when I was when I was really little. They, at least they didn't mention if they were buying stock. Later on, my dad would love talking to me about stocks or what Jim Cramer was saying. Unfortunately, I didn't really get into money or investing until really college when I started when I started playing poker, which I'm sure is potentially something we could we could get into. And obviously. With with poker, it's a much different relationship with money. I mean, you, you know, you're. I mean, it's it's similar in some ways and different in, in in others. I mean, you're. It's similar in the fact that like you've got a stack of money that you're trying to grow over time with smart bets. <laughs> essentially, you know, it's a little bit different because the you're going into a casino and the uh, let's just say the, the the randomness is very explicit <laughs> in, in, in a poker <laughs> game. Like even if you're a hundred percent sure that you, if you get it all in before the flop with aces against, you know, someone with pocket fives or something, and you know you're going to win money in that long term, you can still, you can still lose lose on any given day, which is I think different than to investing because with investing you never quite know if you made a good decision, which is interesting. But uh, yeah, I grew grew up in Florida. I don't know if there was anything specific in 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 my upbringing that kind of I'm sure there. I'm sure if you if you psychoanalyze deeply, there was there probably were were <laughs> were, were things that uh, colored my my later my 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 later uh, personality and whatnot. My my dad was very he was a very sort of rational like unemotional guy. Although, like any smart person, he could. I I, I did. I think one thing that 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 did color the way I kind of view the world is. My my dad was extremely intelligent, but he also he was intelligent enough to kind of convince himself of of things sometimes. Like for example, he was he died of lung cancer and was basically addicted to cigarettes his whole his whole adult adult life. And he was able to convince himself that his his heart problems actually were not from from smoking cigarettes and and. Uh, Obviously, there's a chemical thing going on there, right? Where and it's it's a super strong. No one no one likes to think that they're like hurting themselves with 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 what they're doing. And I, I was just I think that probably you know looking back on it, it's 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 uh, the human mind has has an ability to no matter how rational we think we are, we're we're able to convince ourselves of some 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 irrational things, and it applies to smart people as well. That's the other thing. Like the smarter you are, the better you are at convincing other people of your ideas and also of, of yourself, right? Even if the ideas are, it can become a dangerous territory at some point. If yeah, so it, it, you have to be very. Maybe that experience did kind of color my. It makes me, I think, a little bit more likely to kind of try to like take a step back and be a little more self-aware and aware of try try to be aware of my own biases and things like that. So. I like to say that I want to be the least wrong. A lot of people go into investing, they want to be right, and they want to prove that they're right. And I think it's a very humbling pursuit over time. And if you acknowledge that you will be wrong, right. but 
if you choose to be or attempt to be the least wrong, you'll survive financially and do just fine in the and, long run. And the, 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 the crazy thing about investing is you're always wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, on any given month or year or whatever time frame, like technically the optimal portfolio would have been to take your best idea and be 100% in that thing, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, but... But obviously, you, so you're always going to be a little bit wrong relative to that like hypothetical hypothetical portfolio. So well, yeah. the, the the catch is that it's the idea that you think is best, but it's not necessarily the one that will prove to be best. Oh right, right, yeah, and, that, and that's not even right. That's not even considering all the. That's just from a that just yeah that's just from a portfolio weighting mm -hmm. perspective. Then there's yeah all the ideas you could have invested in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the optimal portfolio is the is the best stock or the best asset class levered to the to the gills to the hilt. Mm. You, yeah. you want to share a word or two about your your schools, your education? You oh, went sure. To some good yeah, schools. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So I went. I went growing up. I went to public school, which was interesting. I mean, it's. I, I went to a pretty decent public schools in in South Florida. Florida education system is not is not the best, but there's 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 various pockets. And where I was growing up in in, in Boca Raton, there's some there's some good schools. Although I think I went to like the third best high school in in Boca. Like there was one where they were sending five or ten kids to Ivy League schools every year, and mine was more was more like one or two. But that's still pretty good. Like kids are going to Ivy League schools. That's that's probably probably not a bad <laughs> probably not a bad good, high school. Good sign. Yeah, it's a good sign. And Yes, I, I I went to MIT for for college, and that was I mean MIT is just an amazing place. I don't think I my like eighteen year old brain didn't really appreciate how amazing it was, and definitely didn't take full advantage of all the opportunities there. I mean, you can you can do research with Nobel Prize winners mm -hmm. like as an as an undergrad and get actually get paid for it. Like you can do like you uh, they. They make it very easy to find professors to do to do research with, and obviously you can take any any number of classes. Like it's not like some schools where you have to you have like once you're in, you can major in whatever you want. You can yeah, you can major in economics, and you can learn under Nobel Prize winning economists. You can take math classes and learn from like professors who are like pushing the boundaries of theoretical math, and it's but more than anything, it's it it was an amazing place just in terms of the other students. Like the number of people that I know who are doing like really interesting things in their in their life is just off the charts in terms of like my my friend group. Like my like I was recruited. I, I didn't actually end up joining this fraternity, but but I, I realized later that the, the the rush chair of one of the fraternities when I was a freshman, Drew, had started a company called Drop the Hawks. And I was like, oh my gosh, that guy, Drew Houston, like he started the company, like blah, blah, blah. And then another, another buddy, buddy of mine, actually a really good friend of mine started a, well, I was watching like, I was watching Bloomberg one time and I just, all of a sudden I'm looking at him like, and then I see my like good friend is like all being like interviewed on Bloomberg. I'm like, what's going on here? And it was, he started a Bitcoin mining company that basically takes, it, 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 they, they build data centers at drilling rigs where normally the natural gas would be flared because it's not there's no pipeline connection so you have to just get rid of it 
and they set up they they use that gas to to set up data centers and and primarily mine bitcoin so my so this is like a, a friend of mine that i went to college with and he was on bloomberg because the the sultan of oman was like was like head was like the lead investor in like a 300 million dollar round of round of investing so that's like the the the, the caliber of of people is just was just amazing that was that that's just a huge advantage in terms of like networking and 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 honestly it helped it it actually helped us kind of get off the ground business wise because I, I had a network of friends who, it, even by, by the time we were like early thirties, were so successful and in their in their careers that they needed help with investing, and mm-hmm. they already knew me and trusted me. So we have a lot of our kind of college friends that we were because I mean it's a little bit it's a little bit crazy to invest with someone who's like just starting a firm. An investment firm has no track, no like public track record, right? Like now we have a track record and stuff, and it's like a little bit more reasonable for someone to trust us with their money. But like, just for when we were just starting out, like, I mean, no one, no random person is going to trust you. They need to like know you from somewhere. <laughs> no, it's it's friends, family, and any previous connections that know you from somewhere that would trust right. you at that time. Yeah, so we were we were definitely lucky in that way that we had friends that trusted us and were successful enough to have spare spare funds <laughs> to invest with us yeah evan i have to ask you about the pandemic letters and i shared sure. with you that i i write every two weeks these days but during the pandemic i wrote every week i wanted to communicate with clients more regularly and actually those essays were not meant to be published but since many people asked me to share them they became a book crisis investing and i shared with you that It was very therapeutic and humbling to read those essays that I wrote at a time when we just didn't know what's ahead. And I'm curious about your experience, both writing the letters that you share, and I'll include the link in the note, and then rereading them a few years later when you were putting this new publication together. What was it like for you to look back what you thought you knew, but what actually happened? Yeah, I mean, it's the, the what I love about writing is... and. And I, I write it with my business partner as well. But what I what I what I enjoy about writing is it really it forces you to crystallize your 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 thoughts in a way that other people can understand. And oftentimes that's that helps you really think through things. I'm sure this is not news to you, but that helps you kind of think through things in a more deep way because you're kind of once it's on the page, you're kind of looking at it and you're like, eh, that doesn't make as much sense as I thought it did. I need to do a little more work on this, this, and this. So I find it very helpful in that way to kind of, it kind of separates you from your ideas and allows right. you to kind of challenge them in a more dispassionate way, I think, than when it's just like the voice in your own head. Mm-hmm. So I really like that part of it. And then, yeah, I mean, it's such a huge benefit to be able to look back and at, at what, we, what we thought along the way and just see kind of how we were. I mean, it's, it's so funny to look back at like, you know we have we were invested in this this one this one restaurant company and we were analyzing the real estate that they owned <laughs> the debt and things like that and so we were super we were underwriting it on such a catastrophic basis and it turned out they were free cash flow and they ended up being free cash flow positive the whole time right. so it, it never ended up mattering but it just seemed like restaurants were gonna there was a, obviously a time there where restaurants were extremely challenged But and then the other thing that I think is is really helpful for us now is 
to be able to give people a sense of who we are and how, I mean, it's just like what you said earlier, like you were able to get a sense of kind of how we think right. and by just, by just, by just reading it. And, and it's, it's kind of, it's all kind of, it's all kind of timestamped also, which is nice. Mm-hmm. It's not like you can go back and, you know, I mean, I, I potentially someone could try to like forge something, but, <laughs> but besides that, since everything is timestamped, it allows a person to kind of get to know you and for potential investors. I mean, what, what could be better than, in terms of doing your due diligence on a professional investor, then to see to see not only their 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 track record and their returns and whatnot, but to be able to trace those returns to the ideas in like a time in like a point in time way where you can just actually read why not just what the what the returns ended up, but like why were they why were they set why were they doing it along the way? And I think that's that's as that's as good as any. Like I actually think. Like I think I think I think pretty much everyone, like even if you're like a college student and you're trying to get a job in the industry, you should be you should probably be blogging or have a Twitter account or be like writing things down contemporaneously because I mean, I would much rather hire someone and we haven't hired an analyst yet. I'm sure that day that day will come, but I would much rather hire someone where I can see what they were like writing over time right. and how they think and how that relates to whatever they're doing, even if they don't have any track record of like their investments, but like just to, just over time, like what were they saying a year ago? What were they looking at? How are they analyzing things? And just kind of see that over time. That's, that would be way more helpful than any type of interview that you're going to do. It's, it's interesting because I don't know any successful investor that doesn't read an actual serious investor that doesn't read. And most of the ones I do know they write, even if they don't publish, they, they write for their own needs and purpose and record. And I think publishing the way you guys publish and the way I publish, it makes you very vulnerable because there are others that will look over your shoulder and have an opinion. And obviously, everybody claims to be smarter than you, especially talking about the past. We, we all knew what's going to happen. So it puts you in a very peculiar position to share what you thought at the time and and show how little we all knew and at least you admit that what i find fascinating about those three years and i think they will be relevant throughout our careers i've been doing this as a professional for for two decades but the last three years i think taught me more most of the previous two decades because and you mentioned it in your letters that you had decades of economic and financial history in three years we had a healthy economy, we had a standstill, we had zero interest rates, we had the highest interest rate in decades, we had demand going up and down, we have inflation. I mean, the list is endless of a variety of experiences that belong over a much longer period of time than three years, right? And then we had a bear market, we had a bull market, we had a another sell-off. I mean, it's, it's amazing how much has happened. Yeah, I mean, just if you just think about a, a pandemic, a complete shutdown of the economy, significant inflation, and like a like major like flip in terms of the the trend of interest rates, like those are three things that you know, yeah, exactly. Like they hadn't really happened. I mean, some of like, obviously the pandemic in this scale hadn't really happened in I mean, on this scale ever, probably. I mean, or maybe the Spanish flu back in a hundred years ago or whatever, but for the most basically never in the modern economy and and the other two yeah normally it takes like decades to like see that kind of turning turning points for for things so 
Yeah. yeah, fascinating time, and I think it's worth going back and and researching and studying because we can all learn from it. And it's not just pandemic investing; I think it's a crisis investing. And and speaking of crisis, I there are many ways to make money in in stocks and in businesses. And and broadly defined, I would say that one way is to own own them over the long run, and they successfully compound capital within the business, and you'd enjoy the ride, sort of Warren Buffett way, especially. Once he gave up on Ben Graham's cigar butt investing. <laughs> and then the second that overlaps with it that creates new opportunities is the fear and greed roller coaster of the market, especially the public market where you have a daily quote. And I think what I'm curious about your thoughts, but what I wanted to emphasize in my writing is that any crisis or any distress creates an opportunity for those that are patient and disciplined because you get to own sometimes unbelievable, unbelievable businesses at prices you wouldn't be able to find them at in any other circumstances. Can you talk about that experience for you during yeah, that time? I mean, I mean, yeah. So, right, you, you're talking about kind of the difference between the sort of yeah co compounding style of investing, owning, which is kind of implicitly owning things that maybe aren't quite as statistically cheap, but just have really long runways in terms of growth and reinvestment and long-term returns versus owning things that are maybe not as high quality or don't have uh, don't have as uh, as big of a, a moat or reinvestment runway but are but are cheaper and yeah like i think yeah crises are times when you can potentially get both right i think right and mm -hmm. I, yeah i will never forget we we bought a we bought a hospital company at i mean we we bought it at prices that are like at base, basically versus what they're earning now. We bought it about three times earnings mm -hmm. in 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 2020. And you would just never. I mean, I remember thinking like, yeah, hospitals are. It it seemed it was it, the the hard the hard thing about that about that time period was, at any crisis, you don't you never really know if if the crisis is going to be. The kind of worst case scenario or like i mean because i mean it has happened in history that like stock markets have gone to zero due, due to like war or like communists taking over a country or or, or whatever so the theoretical downside is, <laughs> it may happen <laughs> it, yeah it's uh, the idea of buying everything in a crisis it's it sounds good when we're sitting here a few years later and and the, and the worst case didn't actually happen <laughs> mm -hmm. but yeah so in the moment i was you're just constantly worried like it seems so obvious that hospitals are going to have to be around in a year or two but yeah in the moment when things are shutting down and there's always a way to talk yourself into thinking that it's it's it, there's too much there's there's too many unknowns i mean that's that's the that's kind of the the, the trick of investing is like when to pull the trigger and just decide that at least especially crisis investing is that like there's too much discounted in the price and and the only way that it's not cheap is if some really unlikely thing happened and that's like the like obviously the there's a lot of fear in the in the financial like the banking world right now right, right. Mm -hmm. and you can you can you can definitely concoct some scenarios i mean and, and banks are especially vulnerable to the kind of worst case scenario because there's the, you know, there's feedback loops in terms of depositors leaving and, and whatnot. So that's a whole other a whole other can of worms. But at, at some point, the prices get cheap enough that you just 
you feel compelled. At least that, that's how I feel. Like I, I, yeah. No, that's, that's fair. There's this idea that fortunes are made in the bear markets and a lot of people join investing during the bull market because that's when the neighbor gets richer than you are or this is the moment where people give in and you and i spoke briefly how what i noticed in march of 2020 especially a lot of smart people emotionally couldn't take the uncertainty and i want to ask you about that because in your letters you write that you guys are you and ryan are investors not epidemiologists anything <laughs> like that so the risks and rewards in investing, anybody that tells you that you can make money without risking anything is not telling you the whole story. But there are moments when the level of uncertainty, not just in markets, but in our life, can be so high that we really yeah. don't know what's next. It could be a wide range of outcomes. And I felt like that March 2020 was such a moment in, in my life. Can you talk about those moments and how do you think about investing? Sure. I mean, what a weird time right like i don't know do you have kids no 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 it's just my wife and i and we were in new york at the time ready to pack up and leave new york as things were get, getting really wild yeah i mean having kids in that time was just an extra layer of 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 craziness because all this normally i, I work at home and the kids are gone they're at mm. school but then or daycare or whatever and then like all of a sudden they're not only are the markets crashing and the world is coming to a complete stop but my, my two kids are running around the house. Yeah. My wife's also trying to get her work done. And we and babysitters obviously can't come because they're also worried about COVID. And so I, I joked that like the, the I wasn't I was like just getting into the industry in like 2008, 2009. So I certainly wasn't making putting in any buy orders in 2009. But I joked that it was the, the crash was sort of similar to the financial crisis in terms of magnitude. But the difference was in this case, I had, I, while I was trying to make, while I was trying to buy stocks, I had a five-year-old <laughs> who was like poking me and being like, dad, 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 come on, let's go play or whatever. And I'm like trying to get orders in. I mean, it was, so it was super, so stressful during that time. And honestly, I, I don't know. I don't know how we had the the confidence to 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 buy all the stuff that we did. I just we, I guess we just looked at the individual businesses and tried to buy things that we thought could survive an extended period of time. I mean, we wrote that we're investors not epidemiologists, which sounds like a smart thing to say, but <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit bullshit, right? Because like you got you kind of had to be you kind of had to have some opinion on the virus. It's kind of like saying like if you're if you're gonna invest in like the Ukrainian stock market right now, like I'm an investor, not like a, a war like a, a war analyst or something. Right. But but if the Russian army is gonna come in and kill everyone, like uh -huh. maybe you have to kind of be a, a war analyst a little bit. So although that's I don't know that's that's what I find so interesting about investing is that like there's so many different it's mm -hmm. it's it's as complex as 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 life is, and, and some days you kind of do have to be an epidemiologist, at least in terms of how the virus is going to affect the businesses that you're investing in. Well, I, we manage money for families, very long-term patient capital. And what I notice is that there are certain risks that are not worth taking. No matter how much money you have, they're just not worth taking, especially when the outcome could be zero. So certain investments are out the window. And I say that we have a no-zero policy. We don't want to buy anything that I could imagine at the time of purchase, it could be a zero. And you can think of quite a few scenarios where you buy something that's so, so cheap, but one of the outcomes 
is zero and it's not that hard to imagine but if everything goes well you could make that many times more money so that's a conscious decision i had jeff henriksen on on the podcast you, you might know from value x as well yep. and we talk about uncertainty and he shared a story of a trader during the cuban missile crisis and i think the big discussions or the moment was happening over the weekend and that trader went all in was very bullish on friday went to drinks with a friend and jeff tells the story better than i do but people ask him or his friends ask him how could you be so bullish when you don't know if the world will exist on monday and he said well if the world exists i'm going to be very rich and if it doesn't exist anymore we'll all be dead and I thought that's an interesting way of putting it because there's a certain level of uncertainty that you have to accept that the outcome is that all of it is gone and right. that that's option one. And then the other option is actually the world goes on. And so far, the world uh, kept on going on despite the world wars we, we've had and the pandemics and probably more attractions ahead of us. The world keeps on moving on. But you touched on something interesting, which I would call a location risk. I grew up in Poland, and it was a communist country when I was a kid until I was 10. And then I saw a massive shift investments, the stock exchange reopened after 50 years. So I saw a much wider range of outcomes, hyperinflation. I saw bank runs when I was a teenager. So it's it's nothing new to me. I'm kind of distressed and sad to see it happen in the United States of America, which happens to be my home now. But when I think about uncertainty, there are moments where you have to laugh about it. And then in terms of location, if you pick a poor location for your investments, like, for example, investing in the stock market in Ukraine, you might not have to be there, right? Like, if, if you're an outside investor, you might choose not to be there. And that's how I will look at it. And probably investing in the stock exchange in Poland in 1939 in the summer before the Nazi tanks rolled in uh, September 1st, you just didn't have to be there. Unless you were living there, then it's a whole different experience. But I think there are moments where there are some risks that are just not worth accepting. And it starts with the poker game and ends with with serious investments yeah i mean it, it, it kind of depends how you i think a lot of it depends on how you structure your portfolio and what type of what type of clients you have because if you there are probably or there definitely are people that run hedge funds that are primarily options traders and of course their stuff goes to zero their stuff goes to zero all the time it's but a choice but yeah, if you're gonna buy, if you're gonna buy ten to fifteen stocks or twenty stocks or whatever, then that's a little bit, a little bit of a difference. But that's that's the beauty of investing. Everybody can pick a, a, a place, a spot, and right. that works for them. And you highlighted something really important that works for your clients. I think as as long as what you do works for your clients, I think you're in a happy place. And I, I and I think yeah, I think avoiding avoiding losses, trying to avoid losses is a good also just instills like a good amount of discipline because a lot of the most a lot of the biggest mistakes that people make in investing are basically they're trying to buy a lottery ticket and so if you if you have uh, if you do have the discipline of not buying things that can go to zero you'll just avoid that segment of the market entirely which i think for 99% of investors is probably a, a smart thing to do yeah well speaking of risks and uncertainty i'm curious to hear about shorting so we don't short that you and i talked about it we're long only but you guys short 
And I come across、uh, companies that I would love to go against, <laughs> and and I know that it's not enough. And、uh, I sometimes write them down and leave them for our interns to show them as a case study. And a year or two later, they blow up. I just never know when they blow up. And when you're shorting, you kind of have to know when they will blow up, and hopefully they will not run up too much in between. Can you talk about your experience shorting? And for the benefit of the audience, can you explain how how shorting works and、sure. how you can make money and what the risk reward propo- proposition is? Sure. So, from a, mechanically, what you do when you short a stock is you borrow it from another investor that also does business with your your broker or your custodian. And you, you borrow that stock, you sell it in the market, and at some point you have to return that stock to the person you borrowed it from. And the idea is that when that time comes, or when you decide to return it, you, you buy it in the market at a hopefully cheaper price, and so that, therefore you will have made money overall on that on on the transaction. So if the price falls, you're you're buying it back at a cheaper price than you sold it for originally, and then you're, so you end up. You end up with a little bit of a little bit, or hopefully a lot of it of of cash after the after the the process is 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 done, and you and you return the shares. Of course, it's probably obvious, or people, if you've thought about it at all, the problem is if you're if you're betting against something, you are exposed to price movements upward. So、right. every every dollar that the stock goes up is a do- is an unrealized loss for your clients or for you,、mm-hmm. and so. And the, the cap on stock price. There is no cap on stock prices, right? right? Like if you were short Berkshire Hathaway at twenty dollars or whatever, whatever Buffett started buying it, and you held it till today, you either you probably actually got bought in, you got like zeroed out by your broker a long time ago because you lost all your money, or、uh, you t- turned a large fortune into a small fortune. And the biggest risk is that stocks tend to go up over time on average, and you're you, you have. You're, you're you're negatively exposed exposed to that, but the the potential reward is that you can you can do two things. I mean, one is you can hopefully find. We all are looking at companies all the time. I mean, professional investors, we're looking at companies all the time, and pretty often we find one that we think looks overvalued. I mean, kind of by 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 definition, if you look in the past, tons of stocks were overvalued for whatever reason. Or ended up underperforming, and so there's there is money to be made on the short side if you are if you I mean if you have perfect foresight, right?、Um, which is what no one has. So the other thing that's possible is it can allow you to or allow your client to be more long than they would otherwise. So as an example, a a client. Who has a million dollars to their to their name might want a a portfolio allocate like sixty forty might make perfect sense for them, right?、Mm-hmm. Let's just let's just say like sixty percent stocks, forty percent bonds, and that has a certain volatility that is that reflects the fact that bonds are less volatile than stocks generally, and, and over the lo- over the long term have generally kind of moved in the opposite direction of of, of stocks, although not always. And so, so it's a lower volatility than a 100% stock, a 100% stock portfolio. But what we do for our clients is we can, if we're if we take 20 or 30% of the dollars that come in the door and allocate them to short positions, we can actually potentially have 
20 or 30 percent more long positions like go beyond a hundred cents on the dollar long and 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 have a portfolio that is more exposed on the long side and so hopefully gaining more from our good ideas on the long side and a little bit hedged by the short positions in terms of overall overall market risk so i, I don't know if that's too technical but like that, that allows you to create a portfolio which where you're essentially making two bets one is you're 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 you have a hundred percent long like let's say you're one hundred and thirty long and thirty short you basically have two bets one is you have a hundred percent you're hundred percent long mm-hmm. and that's one thing that's like that's what you guys do basically mm-hmm. and then you have a, on top of that you have a a pair trade essentially you have thirty percent long stocks that you like and you're short thirty percent stocks that you hopefully that you hate or maybe maybe not that you hate that's maybe putting too much emotion into it right <laughs> that you, you know are terrible <laughs> that you know are terrible or you have some foresight that they're terrible and uh, i think that at certain times we actually haven't had we didn't have material short positions until 2020 uh-huh. we we always kind of told our clients that we wanted the option to do that and then in 2020 was really where we were like Okay, not only are our stocks on the long side seeming really cheap, but stocks that we're potentially shorting seem really, really expensive. And so that's kind of when we put on that, that we kind of changed the allocation towards being a little bit more long and a little bit short. And it ended up working out for us. But the risk, the risk there is obviously you could potentially find yourself where your longs aren't working and your shorts aren't working at the same mm-hmm. time. Right. And then you're exposed on both sides. and like I said, the losses on short positions are theoretically infinite. Although J- Jim Chanos likes to say, who's a, he's a well-known short seller. He 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 likes to say that he's seen a lot more stock, a lot a, a lot more stocks trading at zero than at infinity. So that's his way of saying that it's it's it sounds riskier than maybe it is in the in the, in the long term. I think intellectually, it's very appealing because in part of research you, you come across many ideas and many stocks and some of them you feel like oh I, I could own it at some point maybe i don't like the price but i'll put it on my wish list that's how we think and we we have usually a running list of about 100 stocks we'd like to own at some point and then you come across names that you feel like the price makes no sense there's so much wrong with the business <laughs> i don't like the way you're running this show and you feel compelled that you would like to make a vote right and that this this can go really wrong but the funny thing about investing is that even a really bad story and a really bad business with really bad management can go up few times more before it eventually collapses so that's and that's the tricky part yeah and so that that's where it's 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 very difficult i mean you you have to you have to be very humble i mean there should be no more humble person than a short seller mm-hmm. because you have to take your medicine when you're wrong and it moves against you and it starts risking because the the way to the the chinos chinos says oh i've seen more stocks trading at zero than infinity great but when a one percent position moves against you and becomes a three percent position because that's what shorts right. do when they move again against you they become bigger right you just and he's he's done this actually. He he talks about doing it with Tesla covering covering shares where he was short and just mm-hmm. taking his medicine. You have to be super humble and say, I maybe I'm wrong. You can't maybe I'm wrong and I just have to I can't you, you can't risk the whole the whole 
the whole business, the whole portfolio on any single stock or basket of stocks. So it's very, but that just, that just shows how difficult it is because even if you're right in the long run, if you've taken too much, too much medicine, if you've like covered too many losses along the way, mm-hmm. you might not end up making, making any money. So it's, it's very difficult. No, no. I mean, kudos to you to, to participate in it. The interesting point that you just mentioned is that if you go long, and the idea doesn't work out. It, I mean, goes nowhere or goes down. It becomes smaller and smaller position. So it plays a smaller and smaller role. It probably takes up a disproportionate share of your attention as a portfolio manager. <laughs> but technically, financially speaking, it's smaller and smaller. Now, if it's a good idea, then it becomes a bigger and bigger. It, when you're shorting, the opposite happens. The ones that are not working in your favor can become bigger and bigger part of the portfolio. And it, they take up a bigger and bigger share of your mind in the process. Fascinating journey. I want to go back to the emotional journey that the last three years have been. And you and I talked about it briefly. So in March of 2020, I, I took a lot of calls of from fellow investors, professional investors, some of them much more experienced than me. And they were not dealing well emotionally with the sell-off. And some of them just chose to exit the market completely in March of 2020, which proved to be very expensive, uh, both emotionally and financially in the long run, because they missed out on on the recovery. So I want to ask you about the time that followed right after. And I actually did a study of the 08-09 crisis for my own purposes. I was curious which stocks performed the best right after. And and as you can imagine, it's the weakest, the the least attractive that have gone up the most, right? So the funny thing that can happen if you're a patient disciplined investor, that, that in the first stage of a recovery from a sell-off, not the stocks that you hold are doing the best. And actually quite a few people in the industry that I know were underperforming in this time because they were not holding those near zero stocks. Can you talk about that time and what was it like for you, the, the first quick recovery after the biggest sell-off? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there was there was kind of two periods for us in terms of recovery. There was the March, the March recovery, and then there was like the November move with like the when the vaccine data came started to, started to come in. Mm-hmm. I don't remember how we. Perf- I don't think we. I don't think we performed that well in the immediate March snapback or the immediate like March and April like sort of recovery. Because we were we were buying mostly sort of the, the the real economy stocks that were a lot of them were still closed, and I mean that that I I think it's interesting because it th- this time period was so different than other I think crises because you had a lot of a lot of what were historically good businesses, right. but then during the crisis were not obviously because mm-hmm. everything was closed. So it's 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 hard to know like which which like would a restaurant business that had consistently really good really high margins and like a really great like growth ahead of it blah 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 like is like in march of 2020 was that a good business or a bad business <laughs> you know what i mean like in the, in the buckets that you're talking about like it's it was kind of hard to know it's like well i think i think i think a hospital for-profit hospital that has 20% EBITDA margins historically, like, I think it's going to be a good business in a year or two, but, but, but man, it sure seems like, like, and, and it sure seems like it's the market's thinking it's not going to be a good business. And it's, it, so it was one of those weird times where, because I, I normally like for us, if there's like a financial crisis or something, I'm not, I don't really want to be buying the, 
cyclical, like the steel mill that has no demand now, but I think maybe it's going to have demand later or something, which is like sort of the, or, or like, oh, we can like sell the equipment for parts or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, that's the kind of cigar butt stuff that some people are really good at, but from a lot of, a lot of value investors are kind of kind of moved away from that. And so therefore, maybe they do underperform when the economy snaps back because that abandoned steel mill is probably the most depressed price thing right. in, in, in the depths of the crisis. But the difference, with, the difference with the COVID crisis was like the things that were at depressed prices, they had been really good businesses just like six months before. So it was such a weird, it was such a weird time. Like I felt like I was still buying good businesses, but like they just didn't have, they just didn't have any customers at the time. At the moment. Yeah. So that was really, <laughs> that was really weird. That was very, so, that was so strange. Big shift Will never be repeated, I don't think, in the history of uh-huh. my investment career. Yeah. No, no, big, big shifts that year in 2020. And then we went into a bubble, and I know that you and Ryan are, are students of booms and busts, and, and I... I was in college right after or about the time when the dot-com bubble burst. And obviously, all my professors, I think, lost money in the stock market. So they told me it's a casino. And, and we did a lot of research about previous bubbles. And I, I think I was primed to never go into investing in my life <laughs> until I picked up a book by Peter Lynch, One Up on Wall Street, and, and the whole thing shifted in my mind. And I realized that stocks are small pieces of businesses and that one sentence i think is worth the book and and it changed my mind but i want to talk to you about the the bubble that followed because i don't think anybody in march of 2020 was thinking we'll have a a bubble and that companies with no profits actually one of the investment banks i think created a profitless index of businesses with no profits how as a category in itself outperform everything else <laughs> for a period of time so uh, tell me more about this bubble where did it come from it kind of came yeah, out of I nowhere mean, i think i think bubbles are so strange i mean if 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 human beings like if, if we if like we did this whole this whole thing over and i mean like humans and like planet earth and just like we looked at some other planet like i would not be it would not shock me if like if like bubbles just like didn't happen like it's just it's such a weird it's such a weird thing that plays on the the non-linearity of markets and the emotional feedback loops of think prices going up so more people are interested so narratives get told about xyz and then the price goes up more and then more people are interested and i mean yeah it was so it was so shocking i mean from the one on the one hand it made a it, it made a little bit of sense because you you had a confluence of zero percent interest rates with all new trends that were happening right like suddenly we had all these new like work from home and like everything digital and blah 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 like there was a lot of like exercise from home and just there was a lot of new trends to kind of hop on cryptocurrency like and and any like new trend like that is a potential is a potential bubble right Mm -hmm. whether it's like 3d printing or there's like the, the the number of these real trend, sort of real trends that ended up turning into a bubble is uh, that's the, that's the main way it happens. Mm-hmm. But the, the March 2020 or the 2020 slash 2021 bubble was just happened to like these like sort of new trends happened to coincide with I think 
everyone being at home and needing things and also like sports got canceled for a while and people like you had like dave portnoy and other people that mostly (laughs) that mostly were sports gamblers figuring out that actually Uh the the big they were missing out on the biggest casino in the world (laughs) like how had it was right under their nose how had they not uh Uh how had they not figured it out before and it is true i mean you can you can go into a brokerage account and bet like if, like if you're gonna bet hundred thousand dollars on something or a million dollars on something right. in, a, in a casino, mm. it's sort of like you gotta send a wire and you gotta go, you gotta like sign some things. Like unless you're like a well-known person to the casino, right. it's a little bit. It's not actually that easy, but everyone's got money. I mean, not everyone, but like a, a lot of people have money in brokerage accounts, and if you want to bet all your money on some mm-hmm. uh, stock that you pull out of a bag you can do it and it's and i mean it's so much more interesting than betting on 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 basketball games right because you yeah. got real you got real businesses you got technology you got you got management <laughs> doing x y and z i mean it's way more interesting it uh it's just i mean not to mention you have you have a minute by minute pricing of uh-huh. i mean a lot i mean a lot of a lot, like, a lot of european or a lot of european casinos have had like real time pricing of betting in games like for for years now but uh, i mean the stock market's had that forever Uh like uh, creates more excitement creates more excitement and then i mean and i think that was kind of like the core of it was these real world trends combined with people needing a new avenue for gambling and then when things started to kind of work in terms of people making money it just it just turned into a snowball i mean Mm -hmm. and, and i mean and just it just manifested itself in so many interesting interesting ways whether it was this the SPAC boom and there was kind of like all these little micro bubbles that kind of started forming yeah it's it's interesting because i share with clients that what we buy and what we don't buy two things right so sometimes what we choose not to buy not to participate in may matter more in a particular period of time than the things we did buy and I think what I saw in that period, 2021, 22, was what JP Morgan wrote about that the biggest thing about investing or the danger is that when the neighbor is getting richer than you, faster than you, it, that's the most money was lost <laughs> because of it. And I know a lot of really serious, experienced people that were giving in. And they thought that maybe this time is different and then maybe they should be a part of a lot of those exciting trends. So this was a bubble and bubbles will happen all over again in our career. I have no doubt about it. But it wouldn't be that hard to get rid of bubbles. I mean, you and I can decide today that leverage goes away. Without leverage, people will not be flipping homes in Florida in 18 years ago, right? Without leverage, people wouldn't be buying tulips in the Netherlands hundreds hundreds of years ago. And then you combine leverage. And when I say leverage, I also mean derivatives, basically buying much more than you can afford with the money that you have, right? It's it's the same idea. Right. You combine that with a daily quote and you have an explosive combination if the right spirits <laughs> awake, right? It's fascinating how all of those things coming together can create all over again a bubble in something new. Yeah, and I mean, I think, I don't know, I... I, I I don't really, I don't really understand the people that got caught up in a lot of the the kind of new age stuff, or at least I don't understand the people that 
that flipped from like from like more traditional value investing to like to getting caught up in some of the new age stuff because i mean if you've studied if you've been around or studied history like we've seen this before like it's always they always say it's the new thing <laughs> they always say it's the new thing it's like uh-huh. it's like but you just had to look at the at the the unit economics for some of these things i mean they they like you said like a lot of them just made no sense i mean some of the businesses didn't even have revenues. Like when we were building our when we were building our basket of short positions in like late 2020, early 2021, especially with some of the SPACs. Right. Like half of them had no revenues. I mean, okay, venture capital happened. Venture capital investments can be made and can work great. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about billion dollar market caps. We're talking about multi-billion dollar market caps. You had companies claiming that they were gonna send people to space uh-huh. and having no revenue. Uh-huh. And I mean, and I think one of the one of the one of the most telling things was the the move towards SPACs in general. Uh-huh. Because if you just if you know anything about the way the IPO process works and how the SEC tends to scrutinize and and not even allow projections in in in, in, in IPO documents, you would immediately know why they were go- people were trying to go pump public via SPACs. It's so they can put really bullish projections in all the documents sell it to people based on that and like why why if you have such if you have a good business why do you need to put projections in 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 your documents and so we would see we were shorting things with no revenues mm-hmm. and we're projecting 500 million dollars in revenue in like some completely unproven business right and, i mean for most of them fast forward three years and they still have no revenue no no i mean so, uh, you had th- those companies but you also had companies with failed unit economics and no matter how big they grew they showed us that they were losing money on every single unit whether it was a used car they were selling without naming any company or (laughs) something else so if you grew to become large and you're still losing money on every single unit whether you're renting out office space also people can guess which company it is then it's a failed business it's 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 a highway to nowhere i mean yeah and you had to just like you had to like go in your head and say, okay, what if we entered a world where people only cared about growth and nothing else? Okay. Well, if that is really the case, I can just, I can tell you a great way to make, to raise billions of dollars. You can literally sell. I mean, the whole like selling dollars for 50 cents yeah. or sorry, and giving yeah, away, giving away. Yeah. Selling dollars for 50 cents. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it was a, that's been sort of a, a, a crusty old value investor critique of new businesses for a long time, but it's it's not it's not like false on its face in terms of like why that would be a, why you should be critical of a firm that's doing that. It's mm-hmm. just the question is were firms really doing it? And and what happened was gr- like growth at any at any price at any valuation just became so dominant in terms of the investor psyche and what pe- what was in terms of being able people wanting to throw capital at, at projects that people just brought out projects that could show revenue growth with no unit economics and yeah i think it's easier to see when you have a very simple straightforward almost cash business like a coffee shop if you're selling a dollar cup of coffee for 50 cents at the end of the day you can tell that something is off right away but if you call it a tech company and if it's part of a new trend and taps into this new enthusiasm excitement around something new it's easy to forget that at the end of the day you're giving away coffee 
for half the price. And even if you open a thousand locations, the underlying economics don't work. <laughs> and I think it gets lost. It, there was so many that, that this period was, was just rife with th these sort of pivots or like rebrandings of, yeah, coffee shop as a tech company or we're a software company, but now we're getting into Bitcoin uh -huh. or like we're, we're, we're losing money on every, we, we're, we're a, a TV, like an MVPD cable TV operator and we have negative gross margins. But one day we're going to do sports betting uh -huh. and people are going to bet through us and we're going to make a bunch of money. I mean, what? Yeah, like the, that, the, the list was endless. Of The of pivot, <laughs> like just short every pivot. Like just short, if it has a two $5 billion valuation and they're, they, the only way that the, makes any sense is because they're telling you a story about some second business that they're going to enter later, like just, just, just short it. I think. Evan, I know we're at our time. I, I hope you have a few extra minutes because I have a question sure. or two. Yeah, yeah. You, you write in your letters, you say that inflation is the catalyst that will pop this everything bubble. So I have to ask you about inflation. How do you feel about it and what, how it's going to pop? Are we done popping? Are we still popping? Yeah, I mean, I think, <laughs> I think we were feeling like inflation was going to be much more persistent than, than some, than some other people. And certainly that valuations in the stock market, in the bond market really kind of indicated back in late 2021. And obviously the increase in interest rates did have some bubble popping effects and i mean i think it, i don't think there's been like some like complete washout of things right i mean like the market is like what's the net return of the market since early 2022 like flat basically i mean down a little bit and so we i, I still think that there's some excess in certain pockets of the market which for a short seller is means means definitely some some opportunity so i think we're kind of headed headed a good chunk of the way down that road in like the most speculative stuff i mean a lot of a lot of things that we were short uh, ended up down like 70 80 percent for in, in in 2022 and so 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 a lot of those things have mostly mostly pop so i think we're kind of some it's like on, on bill, bill brewster on the value after hours podcast always talks about like what inning are we in <laughs> and of course he was talking about the bull he was talking about like kind of the bull market um, right i think in like this sideways or negative market or like sideways or down market we're maybe in inning like five or six i could certainly see like another another leg down but much less sure i mean at least in terms of my opinion much less sure about kind of the direction from here than we were right. in late 2021 late 2021 it seemed pretty Mm -hmm. Pretty, pretty, pretty clear. I mean, at least in, 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 in hindsight, maybe. Although I don't know, the data on inf the data on inflation seems like maybe it's maybe it's 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 come under control mostly, but we'll see. It self corrects itself unless it gets really out of control. So I grew grew up and I saw hyperinflation in Poland, and when the prices really get out of control, the money is losing value so fast that. that People are acting in a way that's rational at the time, which is to, to spend the money or, or buy hurt currency or buy something of value or buy something they can resell. So you have the side effect of fake demand for things that they shouldn't be buying. It makes no sense to buy a second car. So it's interesting that once you lose that fairly stable price evolution, this, the side effects are, it's a wide range I, of things that people I, do. I think people, I think 
a lot of like politicians and whatnot don't really understand how nonlinear the whole the whole system is in terms of how things can cascade in an inflationary environment. Like, like they like I think the, the, um, some certain politicians have criticized the Fed for 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 raising interest rates. Obviously, that's going to tend to cause people to lose their jobs on on average, right? Like more probably more unemployment with higher interest rates, but. I mean, and, and it seems like it seems like oh, hyperinflation or th- things like that could never happen here. But it's it's very nonlinear. Like the, mm-hmm. the like if you look historically across the world, like the the sort of mild inflationary environments that we've seen in the U.S. really over the past like hundred years, even in, I mean the seventies and eighties, like yeah, there was inflation, but it was never hyperinflation. It's 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 actually a precarious, a pretty precarious thing in the long term that mm-hmm. requires trusting authorities to kind of to, to take away the punch bowl at, at, at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, I think people that criticize that are, 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 are misguided and not really understanding how bad the, how bad the worst case scenarios like in Poland at certain times could, could actually be. Well, at the end of the day, the businesses will go on because people want to buy services and products and the, the currency gets replaced. And in some countries that even these days... Uh, I'm thinking of Venezuela and parts of South America. The, the dollar becomes the currency they use to close transactions on a daily basis. And, and in Poland, the dollar was gold. The dollar was the place where you would put the money and bigger purchases were denominated in the dollar for a period of time. And then you change the currency and you call it a new something and you take a couple of zeros away and you start all over again. And Poland did it in 1920s because Germany had hyperinflation, but Poland had hyperinflation in 1920s, and the Polish currency was tied to gold and to the dollar the same way until 1930s the dollar was gold, and you reestablish trust in the currency because that's what it really comes down to. And the dollar has an amazing position in the world as a reserve currency these days and a major currency in terms of trade in all commodities. So... It's a precious position to be in, but at the same time, as you said, it's not linear and you can lose it or undermine it quicker than you think. And I hope some smart people are thinking about it. Yeah, I think, I think the people at the, at the Fed definitely, for all the potential mistakes they've made over the years, I mean, they, they definitely do think about that, I hope. I think they do. I think they do. Evan, before I let you go, I like to ask my guests about their definition of success. I know it's a big one and it's at the end. So if you have a quick definition. Let's hear it. I think, I think success is, is really is in, is really enjoying life. Like it's not at the end of the day, all the money in the world is not going to. I mean, it's like very I don't know. It's sort of a cliche to say that that you enjoyed things along the way. For me, right. I get enjoyment out of kind of pushing myself to the limit in like whatever pursuit I'm doing, whether it's like investing or playing tennis or, or whatever the, ca- the case may be. So that's just, that that's fun for me. Like trying to honestly, like I just, I see all these things as like games basically to try to, to try to win <laughs> just because I enjoy, I just enjoy, I just enjoy the competition of it. Uh-huh. But success comes, I think not from, not from winning the game necessarily, but just kind of in, enjoying the process mm-hmm. along the way, which includes also enjoying time with your family making sure relationships with everyone are healthy and whatnot. So I uh, hope that's not too cliche of an answer. No, no, I like the sound of that. It's it's interesting because a lot of my conversations on this podcast start about money and investing, and we end up talking about time. Uh, time is the most precious asset that we have because you can borrow money. 
you can save money. I mean, you can even steal money, but time, you can't do any of those things. You just have the time that you have and how you spend it. And if you're enjoying the ride, that matters the most. And, and money can be a means to an end on the way and can help with things and give you peace of mind and all the other things. But and I think it. it's also I think it's also sometimes important to reflect on the fact that like anyone listening to this podcast probably doesn't have like like money and like financial issues like relative to a lot of people in the world you know like there are people in the world living on a dollar a day but everyone That's listening to this podcast ha probably has a thousand dollar computer and a thousand dollar phone and it's sometimes important to like reflect and have perspective on the the, the real sorts of problems that, that, that some people have that we largely don't you're just telling the audience you guys are doing okay enjoy yes, it <laughs> exactly evan thank you so much it was a real joy talking to you today and i appreciate you spending an hour with me and indulging my questions so thank you thanks for having me you were listening to talking billions we talk about big ideas big inspirations big topics we take on the hardest subject of all money but our conversations lead us to an even bigger question what it means to live a rich life beyond money if you enjoyed the show Please take a moment and follow, subscribe, rate, and share with friends and family. We rely on word of mouth to promote the show. One click for you means the world to us. Thank you. Until next time, your host, Bogumil Baranowski. The content of this podcast is for general informational purposes only, and so are the opinions of members of Seacard Associates, a registered investment advisor, and guests of the show. This podcast does not constitute a recommendation to buy or sell any specific security or financial instruments or provide investment advice or service. Past performance is not indicative of future results. More information on Seacard Associates is available in its Form ADV disclosure documents available at advisorinfo.sec.gov.